0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bob Mallard, and he'll be answering your questions on brook trout, conservation, and fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to the website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing Businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Bob Mallard about brook trout, conservation, and fishing. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pangas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack crevalle, dolphin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Bob, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and look for the link under Bob's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bob's latest book, Square Tail, courtesy of Stackpole Books. To find out more about the books that uh, Stackpole publishes, go to stackpolebooks.com, stackpolebooks.com, and you can check out all that they have to offer, uh, so many books in fly fishing. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions. Sometimes I do two-part questions at the end of the show. Uh, the questions will be about something that uh, Bob and I talk about during the show, and so you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our home page. So listen closely, uh, take notes, uh, type fast, and maybe you'll win Bob's book, Square Tail. Our guest tonight is Bob Mellard. Bob has fly fished for 40 years. He is a former fly shop owner and a registered Maine fishing guide. Bob is a blogger, writer, author, fly designer, and native fish advocate. He's a publisher, uh, northeast regional editor, and a regular contributor to Fly Fish America magazine, and a columnist with Southern Trout Online magazine. Bob is a staff fly designer at Catch Fly Fishing, an ambassador for Epic Fly Rods, and on the Scientific Anglers Pro staff. He is also a founding member of the National Vice Chair for Native Fish Coalition. And Bob's writing, photographs, and flies have uh, been featured in Outdoor Life, Fly Fisherman, Fly Fish America, American Angler, Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Fly tire, Angling Trade, Eastern Fly Fishing, Mid Current, Orvis News, The Fiberglass Manifesto, Fly Life Magazine, Southern Trout, Tenkara Angler, On the Fly, Fly Fishing New England, The Maine Sportsman, Northwood Sporting Journal, and Epic Planetary Design Blogs, R. L. Winston Catalog and the Books Guide Flies, Caddis Flies, and American Favorite Flies, Fifty Best Tailwaters to Fly Fish, Twenty Five Best National Parks to Fly Fish. The Hunt for Giant Trout, and Maine Sporting Camps. Look for his books, the 50 Best Places Fly Fishing in the Northeast, and the 25 Best Towns Fly Fishing for Trout. and his most recent book, Square Tail, The Definitive Guide to Brook Trout and Where to Find Them. Bob, that's quite a laundry list of writing. You've been busy, man. Uh, Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's uh, quite quite the. It's a heck
1: of a lead, any, in, yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have any time to fish?
1: Uh More than I care to admit to. <laughs> if I told people how much I fished, no one would feel bad for me.
0: No, no, no. Okay, good, good. I'm on good. the water right. over a
1: hundred over a hundred days a year,
0: and have been wow. for many years. Well, good for you. Good for you. Glad you're able to get out there. Well, um. Uh, I read your book, um, Square Tail, and uh, as I was telling you before the show, I was really impressed with um, the research you did and the information you've gathered over the years on conservation and preservation of of brook trout, Uh, and we'll get into that here um, very shortly. Uh, I just didn't realize how much was involved, uh, and and I know it applies to all the different kinds of fisheries, uh, not just brook trout, but... uh, but uh, I didn't realize how much is going on that we need to be, pay attention to. So anyway, with that said, let's, let's dive in here, and um, let's just start out to just o- get oriented with Brook Trout. Um, and tell me why, you know, why you're so in love with Brook Trout. What got you going in regards to Brook Trout?
1: It was uh, I lived in New England, lived in New England my whole life, and uh, I traveled a lot. I drifted away from Brook Trout got caught up in brown trout and stock rainbow trout and everything in between. And it took me a bit to fully understand and appreciate, you know, what brook trout are, why they're different. Um, It's pretty, would be hard to say they're not our most beautiful, quote, trout, and uh, and that they live in more natural and diverse places than probably any other trout, salmon, or char species. So I didn't you know, I, I loved them back when and then I fell out of love with them and then I fell back in love with them. So <laughs> okay. I come full circle on brook trout.
0: Okay, good, good. What can you give us a little history about brook trout um, uh being that they they are considered like our our native trout for America, right? Yeah, you know, I
1: and I again that was something that I didn't fully appreciate because I was surrounded by brook trout my whole life but the more i read and the more i traveled and more i paid attention uh, the more i realized you could argue that brook trout were our first game fish uh, they were by far you know the fish most frequently written about and painted and um, and long before people talked about uh, rainbow trout and cutthroat and long before brown trout found their way across the atlantic it was all brook trout Uh, Going back to, you know, Daniel Webster and, uh, you know, famous painters and writers and authors. And so, you know, they have a really long history in America as not only a game fish, but also as a forage fish for settlers and and indigenous people. But uh, as well as, you know, the the whole fly fishing scene, it started with brook trout.
0: Yeah, and it... uh, um being that a lot of the settlers coming to America back then were from England and probably familiar with fishing there and so forth. That probably was easy for them to latch on to the brook trout as another uh, fish to fish for here. What was their their original native range, and how has that changed or has it changed?
1: Really, it's, um, it's one of the widest distributed native fish in North America, it's probably the um, most widely distributed native fish in, in the United States. Within the United States, it's top of Maine down to uh, northern Georgia. Both sides of the Appalachian Divide get halfway up the uh, east coast, and they're all the way to the ocean. Those fish found east of the Divide are Atlantic Ocean watersheds. The west side would be great uh, Gulf of Mexico. There's, you know, there's there's fish up in the Great Lakes all the way from, you know, New York into Superior. There's a couple of odd holes in the map um, where they, you know, there were some kind of non-contiguous populations. Uh, Michigan's an oddity where the Upper Peninsula was all native brook trout. The Lower Peninsula had some native brook trout, a lot of dispute as to where they were and weren't, but... Um, they went as far west as Minnesota and the you know Lake Superior. They went far east as you know Cape Cod. And in fact, there are brook trout out on Martha's Vineyard, uh, off the coast of Cape Cod, so isolated on islands. And in Canada, they run all the way up, um, you know, as far west as Ontario, right up through the Maritimes, you know, Quebec, New Brunswick, Labrador, and uh, so they have a heck of a range. As far as, you know, you, you can never, I mean, it, you really can't expand native range because by default mm-hmm. most range expansions are artificial. Um, mm-hmm. You can lose native range due to changes in habitat, and there are some natural expanding. Uh, but, you know, we're not, because the the changes we're seeing environmentally are going in the wrong direction for trout, we're not really seeing, you know, trout showing up um in places they didn't used to be, like polar bears Mm -hmm. and other things. Um, And and it would be fair to say that, you know, we're losing some range, not just isolated population, but actual range. And that would be uh, one of the real unique things about blue trout is they live at a much lower elevations than most other trout. You know, they're at sea level in a lot of places, and those are the areas getting hit hardest. And if they don't have springs and cold water, as far as a non, you know, the unnatural expansion or the non-native range expansion, they're all the way to the west coast, just like yeah. um, rainbows have made it all the way to the east coast. In fact, I sure. say I have, um, a, I, I have them. I at.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm at uh, 8,800 feet in uh, Colorado, and uh, Deer Creek that runs down the valley that I live in uh, has brook trout in it. <laughs> so yeah. Now, uh, yeah, in New England,
1: you'd be 2,000 feet in the air. Higher than the highest point in New England at 88. yeah. So yeah, and we yeah. don't have, we don't see trout much higher than say 3,500 up here. Yeah, but uh,
0: yeah, and the you know
1: expansion. I uh, article I wrote recently. I pretty much said that as brook trout headed west and rainbows headed east, they
0: pass somewhere in the middle,
1: and now they mm-hmm. both can be found coast to coast.
0: Yeah. 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 Why don't brook trout get the love that other species do that we fish for on a regular basis? For those over 40,
1: I do make a comment. The analogy, I, the Rodney Dangerfield, the game fish, and that was his old shtick with the "I get no respect." But you know, part of it was, um, you know, we definitely trout fishermen more than any other sportsmen. We've become enamored with, you know, bigger is better and, and aggressive. So,
0: you know, brown
1: trout. Which are the most non native of non natives, they're a European fish, uh, they became kind of the uh, most sought after trout in America, you could argue, even though rainbows were the most populated. Um, most of the covers of magazines for a long time, they would, it was all about brown trout, and you know, because they're a big, aggressive fish. Probably the number one reason that brook trout don't get the love others do is. In most places, with a handful of exceptions, you don't get big brook trout. And, you know, fly anglers, like most anglers, you know, bigger is better. But I am seeing some changes. I'm seeing a lot of young people embracing, you know, what we call blue lining, which is small stream fishing for small fish. But uh, the average person, if you don't live in New England or the Great Lakes, or you know, you're probably not seeing brook trout over 10 inches.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think that's the way most of us think of burk trout, uh, except for those that have uh, learned about some of the, the huge fish up in, uh, you know, in Canada, uh, the maritimes up there uh, that uh, reach incredible sizes. Uh, by the way, um, <laughs> just it was just really kind of uh, surprising, but I'm reading your book, and um, I turned the page, uh, that has, um, Tim Matheson, uh, yeah. Manitoba. Yeah, that's a heck of I a you? <laughs> I, I fished with him. My dad, uh, my dad started fishing with him years ago, and then he brought me up there, and I brought my son up there, and we fished, uh, Kisissing Lake, which is, his uh, his house and lodge wrong. But uh, I did, I go, oh, well, that's all Tim Matheson right there. <laughs> that was yeah, really You know, a, I, I found surprise. a picture. I found the picture on the internet, and then I tracked
1: him down, and I was looking for one real good picture for the angling records section. He was a very nice, very very nice guy. I'd love to fish with him someday. Very humble man and very helpful, and uh, and that is a, a heck of a fish.
0: That is I fished Labrador.
1: A fish. It is. I mean, it, it's giant. But I I fished the Little Minnepe system in uh, Labrador. Mm-hmm. And, our, you know, the numbers were that low, but the fish averaged five and a quarter pounds. Everybody got a seven-pounder, and I think we had three eight-pounders in the camp in the course of a week, and it was a small eight-person camp. And um, so, the, you know, that when you're averaging five and a quarter, that competes with pretty much any trout in the country. I don't know many places that average, you know, even close to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about that and the differences in sizes uh, here in a few minutes because we do have some questions about that. Um, one of the things I want to know is uh, why are brook trout? You had mentioned in your book that they're an important indicator species for healthy aquatic ecosystems. Uh, I think you referred to them as a canary in the coal mine uh, as far as fishing goes. Uh, why? Why is that? I mean,
1: that can be true for any native fish, but the unique thing about Brook trout, is they're living on the edge. They're, unlike cuts and native rainbows that are living in high altitude, uh, very um, clean, nutrient-rich waters, brook trout are eking out a living, you know, at at, uh, sea level in water that gets really warm, gets uh, really cold. We get anchor ice. We have a long winter up here in New England. We have... uh, a lot of low gradient uh, habitat, which um, you know tends to warm, and we've got these natural freestone streams that go, you know, kind of that, um, you know, one in one extreme to the other, where either in summer drought or spring raging, you know, torrent, and and so, and these are not fertile streams for the most part. Uh, most of your um, Natural freestone streams are relatively infertile. Some are extremely infertile. So you've got a species that has evolved to live in what would be considered marginal habitat for most trout. And that's where you see your problems quickest. Um, Fish, you know, it's kind of like evolution. I tell people the, you know, evolution is best described as, you know, a race against time. Um, If you don't move fast enough, you go away. And change comes slower to places like the Rocky Mountains because the, the range of tolerant uh, temperatures and stuff, you know, it takes longer to get from where you are to where you could be and be in trouble. Where in places like New England and, and a lot of, the, um, you know, the eastern seaboard, uh, you know, you can, uh, you're right on the edge anyway, so all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing changes and, you kind of know something's wrong. I mean, we've seen brook trout populations blink out for, you know, reasons we're not quite sure. Santowit River in Massachusetts, it was a sea-run brook trout river, and they just kind of vanished. And uh, we don't really know exactly what took them out, but uh, they appear to be gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, when you refer to wild brook trout, uh, are you talking about indigenous Brook trout, peep, uh, trout that uh, have been in that area forever, or can we have wild brook trout in Colorado? What, can you define those terms for yeah. me a little bit better? Yeah, these terms
1: are becoming, the uh, term wild, term native, uh, they're becoming horribly misleading and misused over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, you know, well, my position has always been, and that of our non we use a dictionary um, Uh, the dictionary meaning of wild, which is self-sustaining, born in nature. It doesn't matter whether it's native or non-native. It simply means it didn't come from a hatchery. So any trout that's born in the wild or in nature is by default a wild trout. Native, we take the same position, which is that the meaning of native is strictly indigenous, historically present. And, you know, a rainbow in New England can be wild, but it certainly can't be native because it, it was never there, we put it. Right. And yeah. we, on the non-prof side, um, are, we use the terms together, wild native, and that's the only place we play is wild native fish. We don't really get involved in wild non-natives. We certainly don't get involved in, you know, stocked natives,
0: and that's another
1: interesting thing I've had people say, how can you have stocked natives? And I said, well, if this pond over next to me was historically a brook trout pond and we now stock it with brook trout, that's still the species that was historically present in that pond. They're just not a wild fish anymore. And that brings up, you know, huge discussions about, you know, the important role that a given species plays in a given, you know, ecosystem. And, uh, you know, in some cases, believe it or not, a stocked native is, it's no worse, and in some cases, it's less bad than a wild non-native. Because at least, you know, that is a part of the puzzle. Now, of course, there's yeah. other problems with, with stocking, like disease and low genetic diversity and a bunch of other stuff, but it's just never quite as simple. So that's the big yeah. twist is that, you know, it's, it's, Indigenous. Native is indigenous. Wild means, you know, self-sustaining.
0: Born in the wild.
1: Born in the wild.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, we're going to take a quick break here, Bob. Uh, and when we come back, uh, I'll ask you what's happening in your fly fishing world. So uh, hang with me, and uh, I'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years, testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Bob Mellard about brook trout. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. So, Bob, uh, what's going on in your fly-fishing world today?
1: You know, I um, just come off of a two- or three-week kind of sabbatical. Things are real hot, and once it gets really hot, I'll get back to writing, and I've been posting some signs up in the woods that have to do with um, angler signs, informational signs, and I'll be back on the water probably next week. I won't come off again until the snow forces me off. But um, at a very high level, after years of um, going through all the, the changes that anglers go through, you know, lots of fish, big fish, hard fish, you know, dry fly fish, giant streamers, I've kind of settled back into um, small streams, natural, natural habitat. Wild native fish. So I'm probably fishing more brook trout streams and small ponds um, than I am anything else um, and than I have since I was a kid. And I'm having as much fun chasing, you know, eight inch, um, six to eight inch brook trout, and an eight would be big in small mountain streams as I did uh, chasing 20 inch browns with my drift boat. Um, My last trip, I went in a couple weeks ago and hiked in, uh, drove in about six miles on a dirt road, hiked in about just short of four, uh, camped out for a couple days, and hit three very remote mountain streams and
0: caught a pile of fish,
1: and I'm not sure I caught one over six inches.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. Probably in in very uh, uh, tight quarters, too, huh?
1: You know, yeah, these are high-gradient. A lot of canopy, and uh, but unlike the Appalachians, Southern Appalachians, uh, we get such flooding up here that um, you know these streams, you know the high water mark, it can sometimes be 10 feet above where you're standing in the summer. So they're a little more open than what you find in Virginia and North Carolina, but but you know push far enough and you'll eventually get canopied up and and uh, a lot of waterfalls and stuff. It's interesting we find these little landlocked, isolated populations that are squeezed up between a couple of waterfalls, eking out a living in a half a mile of river.
0: Wow, wow, amazing that they're such survivors, you know. So. Yeah, oh, always yeah. amazed me. Um, great, well, thanks for sharing that. Um, we have a question here uh, from Skip Clement in Atlanta, Georgia. He says, um this, this question can open up a, a lot of conversation, but uh, he says, the brook trout found in all but your neck of the woods are small and brilliantly colored, uh, and those uh, that I fish for in Quebec in one or two of the maritime provinces are comparatively dull as a washboard. Why? So talking about color, and you, you talk about that a lot in your book. Um, can you give us some insight on the different colorations and and yeah, I mean, water
1: water chemistry always affects fish to some degree, as does substrate. One thing I learned relatively recently, and you know, I won't say I, it was a total shock, but it was certainly kind of a you know an eye opener and a, a reminder. Was I was doing some surveying with uh, New Hampshire Fish and Game, and we were handling freshly shocked up brook trout. And moving them from nets into uh, five-gallon pails, and because I was right in it, paying really close attention, I was surprised how quickly those fish changed color um, when we moved them from you know that tannic, brownish you know water and a dark you know substrate and put them in these sterile white buckets, and. At first, I thought, was it, a, was it the result of being anesthetized? Like, you know, when you throw a fish on a shore and it starts dying, it loses color. And so I played with it a bit myself and found out that actually, no, because when they came back to life, they didn't get their color right back. So they, they're more chameleon than I thought they were. And while I always knew that brook trout can run from silvery to brilliantly colored, I didn't realize, and I knew that some of that has to do with food, some of it has to do with water chemistry, some of it has to do with, you know, the, or at least anecdotally has to do with the color of the water and the color of the bottom. Beaver pond fish tend to be uh, darker than than a lot of stream fish, but I, I never realized how quickly and how chameleon like they can be. So I, you know, I suspect that a fish you catch you know, in a beaver pond, you know, yesterday could be a totally different looking fish if he gets up over the dam and back on a, you know, granite the next day. So, you know, a lot of factors, forage, water chemistry, um, you know, stream bed. And um, and I think, you know, stream bed has more of an impact than I thought it did. And so I started to pay attention when I'm Catching fish over granite, we have a lot of granite and um, and you've got that gin clear water pushing over these uh, smooth granite rocks and I've noticed that those fish, even in the same river, they are lighter than the fish that I find under canopy in areas with more moss growth and where the water might be a little tannic from a you know a, a tributary coming in so oh, that's probably a, about as. Much as yeah, you could yeah. conclude, and and the other thing I noticed here on on Skip's question was when we talk about the maritime provinces, a lot of those are sea run fish, and sea run fish, uh, when they enter the ocean, they get silver as heck, and so again, you know, it's probably the same thing. Really clear water, they're over sand, and um, and they, you know, but I see them fresh out of the ocean and they're silver as can be, and then, you know, day later, a couple days later, they look like brook trout.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that they can change, though, you know, with, uh, I'm saying, within the same life form. In other words, they haven't evolved. It's like you said, chameleon kind of nature. Um, I read a study that they did down in, um, I think it was in the the Caribbean, but in fresh water where they took, um, they used guppies because guppies breed so readily, you know, and you can get God knows how many generations within a year. Uh, but they put them in two two areas. One was on a sandy bottom, smooth sand bottom, and one was on a pebble bottom, totally separate fisheries. And then they just left them there uh, for, I don't know, a year or two, something like that, and came back and then studied the fish. And they had done just what you had said, the ones over the sand – turned more silvery. No spots. The ones over the pebbles had all evolved into spotted versions of the guppies. Um, and so I think it's a kind of a combination of evolution and chameleon nature, it sounds like, that, that they're able to... Well, I
1: saw it with Arctic char. Um, Maine has a, has a remnant uh, Arctic char population. At best, 12 waters, the only ones left in the contiguous United States and formerly called blueback trout. But I was doing some, helping with some surveys up in a place called Floods Pond, University of Maine, and we had, my non-prof, had just provided a bunch of new fish, big coolers, big yeti coolers for fish storage. And, you know, we're taking pictures of these brilliantly colored fall spawning arctic char, and as we're putting them in these new beautiful white yetis, they changed right in front of our eyes i mean quicker than we could get pictures of them and to a point where um they're changing so quickly from you know the net to the you know from the bucket from the lake to the uh to the tank that it is it is absolute chameleon i mean it's happening as you watch and then they regain their color when we you know slide them back so that confirmed that you know it's not brook trout it's you know, and maybe it's char, char in general. general. Maybe it's all trout, and and I don't yeah. think you'd notice it as much in a rainbow or a brown as you would a brook trout. Yeah, because brook trout's darker and more colorful. But right. it's interesting right. that you know that with all the reading I've done and the scientists I've been around, that you know that wasn't something that I had really heard. I'm sure they all know it. I'm sure they all know why. But interestingly, it's not something we've done a real good job of sharing with the public because, you know, no. I didn't know it. And most people I've talked to are surprised, and, and, uh, but, but it's yeah. clearly it happens, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joe Branchaw in Colorado says, why are the brook trout I catch in the high mountain lakes like footballs with small heads, typically around three pounds in size? Yeah. Um, Could be one plains? of two
1: things. Yeah. Could be one of two things. If they are stocked. And the state is doing, you know, working with what are called triploids. Triploids are a NADZAP um, fish, in, you know, that is unable to breed. So they focus, it's like a mule, they focus their entire energy on eating. And they tend to get these grotesquely big bodies with these tiny little heads. That's one possibility. If these are wild fish, wild non-native, uh, it could be as simple as, and this is tied somewhat to the whole overpopulation of brook trout, non-native brook trout, is that, you know, brook trout evolved to eke out a living in what is relatively, you know, a hostile territory for your average trout. So when you move them, in, you know, we have what are called oligotrophic lakes. We have very sterile freestone streams. You know, they don't have a lot of insect life, don't have a lot of minnow life, and you take that species that evolved to live just fine in these marginal conditions and you put them in these really rich western, um, high elevation, uh, um, watersheds. They can just, you know, go off the charts size wise and, and numbers wise. So that's, you know, he's looking at one thing, either in a, two things, either an abundance of food or the biologists are playing with triploids or something.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. No, I don't know what they're doing in Colorado with, with Brook um, Trout. Be interesting to find
1: out. I saw some in Utah, where up in Boulder Mountain, where everyone we caught had a better, you know, length to width ratio, a uh, length to weight ratio than what I would typically see in Maine. They were all footballs, and and I likened that to be just an amazing abundance of insect life way more than you know what you see other factors you know have to do with um, growing seasons Um, the oldest brook trout I could find on record was 24 years old and that's off the charts for brook trout you know an old old brook trout is 10 years it's you know an Appalachian brook trout's you know a three-year-old's old in Maine a five-year-old's old and that was a Introduced, you know, non native fish living high in the Sierras, most likely, um, spending, you know, eight months a year under ice, really slow metabolism, low mileage, so he, you know, just uh, hung in there much longer. And that can affect size as well, growth rates, because if the fish are under ice for extended periods during the year or in really rough winter conditions, their growth rates slow down if, you know, they're in somewhere in Colorado with a relatively moderate uh, climate. And, of course, Colorado runs from desert to, you know, rougher than anything we see. But, you know, that can be part of it, too, is these guys have a really long growing season in conjunction with an abundance of food.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll have to find out. Uh, maybe Joe can share with us uh, where he's been fishing. Uh, I'd be curious. Uh, to see if that area is different than other areas in Colorado. Um, certainly the ones down on the creek by me are not football, so um, I think they'd be more representative of the kind of brook trout that you'd find in the, on the East Coast. But um, anyway, um, here's a question from Dino in Michigan. I'm going to try to go slow with this because it's, it's kind of complex. Um, he says, our Michigan brook trout, he's from Michigan, are so tiny, and then in parentheses, especially in the Lower Peninsula, which you had said is not uh, an area that uh, is maybe native uh, in the lower part, Um, compared to many areas where they don't like them, and and you put in invasive. uh, So small in comparison to other areas where they don't like them uh, and are actually trying to eliminate them out west. Is there some factor, subspecies, growing season, food-based competition with other species that brings us this situation, not liking fish where they grow well Uh, trying to return the natives where they don't thrive? Uh, Is there something missing or wrong with the environment that makes it so difficult? So I guess in a nutshell what he's saying is they've put some of these, you know, brook trout in places where people don't want them but they thrive, (laughs) and then they they try to maintain them in areas where they don't thrive very well and uh, yet uh, trying to keep them, you know, native. Um, Does that make sense? (laughs) No, I mean, I...
1: Michigan, as I said, it's kind of a um it was the single toughest place to figure out what's going on, what used to go on. Um,
0: the fabled
1: uh trout quote trout waters, the Osable, the Manistee, the Boardman, they're almost universally accepted as being non native. Fish to those waters, which, and they look like brook trout waters. The brook trout are wild, they're beautiful, but those are actually native Arctic grayling waters. And in fact, a lot of what I read said brown trout were actually introduced before brook trout. The other thing you're seeing right now is anywhere where rainbows, browns, um, smallmouth, etc., were introduced on top of native brook trout. It tends in lakes. We're seeing it in lakes where you start putting lake trout, salmon. Um, they're kind of a wimpy trout, and they get driven up into the headwaters. Um, you get in the parts of, um, you know, the central and southern Appalachians, you don't find brook solely brook trout till you get above a natural barrier. Below that falls, you know, they're competing with browns and rainbows. So, you know, we've driven brook trout, as we have with cutthroat in a lot of the west, wade it up into the headwaters, and, you know, headwater fish in small streams tend not to get as big for a lot of reasons. It's not simply food. It's, um you know, you're not going to grow a 20-inch fish in a, you know, three-foot wide stream. You know, they're going to stunt, and stunting's not just about food. Stunting's about, um, about close quarters. Um, it's why a fish doesn't outgrow an aquarium when you put them in. Exactly. And uh, so... You know, i have to know where he's fishing, but, you know, uh, Michigan has a – it doesn't have as hostile a climate, certainly Maine does, or or northern New Hampshire and parts of Vermont. It would have a longer growing season, in my opinion. I find um, the waters I've fished out there, at least a lot in the lower peninsula, a lot of spring-fed, so their water stays a little colder than, than ours does in the summer. I saw what I believe to be adequate food. I saw really big brown trout, which is indicative of, you know, pretty solid minnow forage base. So I'm, I'm going to suspect it's a combination of uh, competition for food and space, uh, fish being driven into head headwater, small headwater streams. And, uh, you know, and then his second part of his question, which is um, not liking fish with a, you know, where they grow, well, this this invasive thing. Um, The term invasive, um, not all non-natives are invasive, and no native is invasive. Invasive implies bad, you know, bad for the system. And so there are are non-invasive non-natives, passive minnows that, while they don't belong there, don't do a lot of harm. Then there are highly invasive non-natives, and that means highly invasive to something, and we're just going to say brook trout. Smallmouth bass, highly invasive. Brown trout, highly invasive. Pike, Um, and then of course there's no such thing as an invasive native, because there's no native that in a properly balanced, you know, natural ecosystem is a problem. You know that's how it works. So one of the things about um, when you see this eliminating out west, well, as I said earlier. When you take a fish that evolved to live in, you know, marginal, semi-hostile environment and you throw them in a really um, conducive environment with better, longer-growing season, colder water, more forage, well, guess what? They're going to overpopulate. They're going to push out the native cuts or whoever else, and they're going to become a nuisance. So, you know, brook trout, as much as they belong here, they don't belong there. And they tend not to do well out west because they tend to stunt, overpopulate, and push everybody else out. So, you know, getting rid of brook trout where they don't belong is as smart as getting rid of brown trout where they don't belong. You know, it's, yeah, if, if was, you uh, believe that. Yeah,
0: yeah um, Roger Campbell on Cheyenne, Wyoming wrote in a question about that um, talking about where Brookshot are not indigenous to the mountain area. Yeah, and I I, I see that. Yeah, Yeah, I saw that question,
1: and, and, you know, we can tie right into that.
0: But in general,
1: if you believe that, you know, natural ecosystems are best, and one of the things we're learning is in the face of a changing climate, uh, we are seeing in some instances where the native species, Are adapting to these changes faster and more successfully than some of the non natives. So, when some of the early assumptions were that, you know, climate change would hit the natives first and hardest, might be completely the opposite. We might find that the natives are more adaptable to this change, assuming that change doesn't happen at a speed that they can't, you know, this race against time thing. But, uh, no, so if I look at, you know, the general um, Michigan, you know, it, it's a very brook trout-looking place. You know, it uh, looks a lot like Maine without, you know, the mountains, and and um, they have some pretty darn solid hatches. And I saw adequate mineral life. I saw big brown trout, and uh, especially, you know, and I I think the biggest problem in the upper peninsula it's non-native brown trout. It's very hard to find um, rivers in in the upper peninsula that don't have some invasive browns or rainbows in.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dino had another, uh, kind of a second part to his question, which is, kind of brings up some other thoughts. Um, but he says, is it possible to improve fishing by replacing a failing fish with more successful strains? He says, perversely, the, the smallest brook trout I caught in Canada's superior watershed is far bigger than the largest I have caught in Michigan. So I guess what he 's saying? Can you bring that strain from up there in, in, in canada 's Superior watershed, bring it down to Michigan and have bigger fish it 's kind of like kind of like what our uh, fisheries management people tend, the way they think I think <laughs> if we, if we change it up it 'll be better, but not necessarily right
1: Yeah, I mean we oftentimes I say more often than not, um, these attempts to make things better have actually made things worse. But they're one of the you know kind of tongue-in-cheek answers I give people about these giant fish in Labrador versus you know the biggest we see in Maine or whatever. Um, according to Fishing Games own data, five five-year-old brook trout is rare in Maine. Ten-year-old brook trout are not uncommon in Labrador. So you know eight. You know, they go to ten. There's plenty of five-year-old fish. There's eight-year-old fish. So most fish fall under a scientific category called um, indeterminate growth. They never stop growing. And this myth that, you know, these are just big old spent fish. They serve no purpose. We should put them, mount them, and eat them, whatever. Um, They continue to spawn right up to the end, and they continue to grow. So time in the water. Where the waters conducive to growing big fish, and that means it has forage and it has room and it has you know a, um, a hospitable climate, um, one of the biggest things is keeping their, them there long enough. Um, one of the biggest problems that I believe we suffer, and a lot of people would argue, and in some cases self-servingly, is that you know we've got this minimum length management, and this trophy thing so ingrained in our heads that we have spent generations shaving the top off of populations by, you know, putting a, you know, 16-inch minimum length. So we kill all the fish, 17-0, the very, you know, most important fish there. And then we wonder why, you know, we don't have any 18-inch fish. I also suspect that do that long enough and the only fish left to breed are these smaller fish, smaller um, fish you could be changing that, that fish no differently than, you know, we made 15-inch beagles and a 13-inch beagles. I see, you know, miniature right. Doberman pinchers. You know, I'm not sure how we got there on a miniature Doberman pincher, but we did. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's not too big a leap of faith to say that we could be doing some of this up to our own fish by you know how we're managing you know i think most people understand that game in deer you know you wouldn't manage deer you know the way you manage um fish and uh while we do certainly take a lot there are antler restrictions to protect them but so that's probably part of it and there are places that you know wouldn't grow big fish no matter what you did and uh one thing i've chirped on for years i've got out of the Fishing advocacy, because it is in somewhat conflict with my fish advocacy. And I stay out on non-native and stocked issues and focus primarily on, you know, wild natives. But for years, I challenged the science of using, you know, ad fluvial fish to stock in fluvial environments. So these are lake fish in rivers. And uh, most fish and game departments have an oddly, you know, lake-centric management where a lot of the strains you find in the hatchery, and this is true with virtually every strain in Maine, it's a lake-strain brook trout, and we've got a lake-strain rainbow, and we've pulled some lake-strain brown trout, and and this is not unusual, and these fish are thrown into um, rivers, and then we wonder why they don't do all that well. Now, the scientists who do it, the biologists who do it, they'll defend it and say there's no difference. Conversely, when they were restoring fluvial grayling to Grayling Creek in um, Yellowstone National Park, they were just miles away from an adfluvial, uh, flourishing non-native adfluvial population, um, wild population in Greve Lake. They could have just, you know, put a copter up, grabbed all they want, but they took, you know, fluvial fish from, you know, threatened, or borderline endangered from the upper big hole 100 miles away and use them, you know, to, to re, re, um, restore this um, stream after reclamation. And so there's a reason the feds did that. And I've talked to some biologists who say, well, of course, you know, a fluvial strain is more suited to life in fluvial quarters. Now, can they adapt? Can some? Sure. But that could be problem as well. And there are strains that were known to get bigger than others. In the main hatchery system, we, we have um, what's called sourdahunk. hunk. It's spelt um, phonetically. It would be Ness Sourdahunk. hunk. I feature it in my book, The Area. The fish, where it comes from, the Sourdahunk hunk lake, I've never seen one over 16 inches. It's in our hatchery, and most places we use it, it doesn't get real big. I know of one place it does. We've also got the Kennebago strain, and the Kennebago strain comes from a historic lake in Rangeley where they did get really big, and most places I know where they're stocking Kennebago strains or Kennebago mixes are putting up bigger fish than, you know, where we're using Sarvahun strain. Uh, We used to use a uh, Canadian strain up up here of Seneca, and um, anywhere we put those, they were kind of off-the-charts growth. So, you know, clearly there are, you know, strains that evolve that, for whatever reason, when they're put in the right places, they get bigger.
0: You know, I don't think
1: you could run down a, you know, southern Appalachia and pull a bunch of you know, six-inch brood trout out of a headwater stream and them in a reservoir and expect that to see, you know, six-pound brood trout later.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, – even given the, the fact that you're moving a strain in there doesn't mean it's going to thrive, um, you know, in, in either situation like you just said. So I guess that's, you know, to Dino's question. Um, uh, yeah, you could try bringing down Canada's superior w- watershed strain, you know, because uh, there's some big ones up there. Um, those coastal, you know, those uh, coasters up in Superior are pretty big, uh, but they may not uh, thrive at all uh, down in Lower Michigan, whatever. I mean, we've
1: got been. one strain of artichare in Maine, one pond. So we've got one water. Floods Pond has, on the average, by far the biggest artichare in Maine. The high end is better than anywhere else I've seen. Now, it's close to fishing. That could be part of it. But with that said, it's the national gene bank for the species, and most introduced Arctic char populations in Maine and elsewhere originate from flood pond stock. And we can take that same strain, pop it in a long pond in Maine, 20 years later, you know, it's a self-sustaining char population, and you never see a char bigger than 8 inches or 10 inches. And yet in its home lake that thing's growing to twenty inches. So you know, it's uh it's never that yeah. simple and right. and it's hard to get absolute answers. One of the biggest problems we have is scientists live in a world of absolute. If they can't absolutely prove it, they don't say it. And so we end up, you know, with that um with uh, a lot of information that's just hanging out there that are probably pretty good, you know, reasonable assumptions based on anecdotal information and based on years in the field that don't get discussed enough because they're not, you know, backed with peer-reviewed science and stuff. And, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. In many cases. Go ahead. Go, Go ahead.
1: ahead. Uh, I-, I was going to say
0: it brings up uh, I was fishing with uh, a friend of mine down in Belize and He's a guide down there, and uh, and he was talking about the same kind of things. He says, "Well, the scientists tell me that this and that about permit." He says, "But I'll tell you, after you know, 30 years of fishing for permit, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like uh, he says. I'll tell you, I've seen them spawn. I know what they're doing, and uh, what the scientists say is a bunch of bunk. You know, um, yeah. so it's kind of like what you just said. Hey, a lot of times the fishermen, whether they're sport fishermen or more so the guides and the commercial fishermen see, they know what's going on regardless of the science, you know. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they ignore the science uh, or what's going on in favor of whatever they're trying to accomplish, <laughs> but, uh, but still uh, that fact, uh, you know, remains. Yeah. Us
1: dumb old fishermen aren't as dumb as some people think. And, you know, <laughs> I've heard some brilliantly simple things from, you know, Joe Average Angler, where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't even necessarily know, you know, what he's saying, and I'm sitting there going, whoa, that, there's that, some absolute validity to that. And yeah. uh, and in my book, I come right out and say I'm not a scientist. Um, I don't have a degree in biology. I don't claim to be one. My, my science is, is absolutely, you know, earned. It's field work. It's reading. Yeah. It's, you know, common sense. It's sorting through, you know, everything I hear and see yeah. and read. and, and um, But, uh, you know, if you wait around for absolutes, you know, you'll never, ever figure things out. The other thing I remind people is if these experts are so correct, why are they, they're the ones moving non-natives around more than, yeah. you know, yeah. anglers are. When it comes to trout, you know, most of the non-native trout introductions in the country... Um, were state and federal sponsored by scientists. Right. Um, I didn't do it. And, uh, you know, while you can blame anglers for a lot of minnows and, and warm water fish, you know, they're not the ones responsible for moving trout and salmon around. Uh, I'm pretty darn sure that stalking over wild fish is a bad thing. I think most anglers know that it's a bad thing. I, I know that most, if not all, scientists know that it is kind of self-defeating. And yet they continue to do it. So I always say, if, yeah. if you know, if these experts are such experts, you know, why are they doing things that we all know, you know, yeah. aren't, aren't biologically really. sound? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stefan Cohn in Ellensburg, Washington, wrote in and he asked about. Uh, he says, well, Brook Trout, Sea Run, like Coastal Cut Trout or Brown Trout, and. Uh, yeah, that was one thing I learned out of your book that I didn't know, As Sea uh, Run brook. Uh, it's a little bit different with them. Can you enlighten us on how that works with brook trout? Yeah, sea run,
1: uh, brook trout, absolutely sea run. They're what are referred to as salters. Um, salters are, you know, the, the giant brook trout of Daniel Webster fame was absolutely a salter. It was caught in the Carmans River on Long Island. It was 14 pounds, and it was a fish that spent, you know, some portion of his life in the ocean. We don't know nearly
0: enough about it. We almost
1: lost our salters in the East Coast to development, damming, and over, you know, angler exploitation everything else, and then, of course, stalking on top of them. And, and uh, we destroyed a lot of habitats with cranberry farming, with, you know, blueberry farming. Cranberry is more just dis- obviously disruptive because you see these giant cultivated blo- uh, bogs and stuff, but blueberries are not without sin. I mean, they're using pesticides and herbicides and things like that but um, the early salters were huge these were measured in pounds not inches and we probably know more about salters right now than we've ever known and what we know is that we don't know a, a lot um, you can have I mean I I struggle with the term, you know, sea-run brook trout. What I do believe, we have um, streams that have resident brook trout that utilize or that have access to the ocean, and they might and might not use it at different times. Um, I'm not sure we can, I definitely know, we can't say that every brook trout in that stream is going to take advantage of, of salt or even um, brackish habitat. I don't believe we could say all salt, all brook trout from a single brood are going to use or not use salt. And I think it's probably, and this is a leap of faith, is it's probably a, you know, quote, personality thing, no differently than why does one brook, brook trout who lives in the Kennebec River go 50 miles in five days and the other one, you know, didn't go a mile in his whole life. So what we do know is that brook trout are entering salt water? We're learning that they're entering at different times um, and for some different reasons. It was initially assumed that it was all forage, that they were going to sea and, and more to estuary the, to eat and fatten up and then come home again. But now I'm seeing places where I don't believe it's hunger driving them out, I think it's low water and warm water and Acadia would be an example where those streams go very low. Acadia National Park, they get very warm. They're unbelievably low, and pretty much every, you know, in a couple streams I know every brook trout in there is heading into the ocean about the same time that the sea-run brook trout of Cape Cod are going back into the streams. And the fish in Cape Cod are heading back into the streams because the streams are actually cooler than the estuary at that point. So they're getting out of warm water in the estuary where they fed all winter and moving up into the streams to take advantage of springs, where at they're doing the exact opposite. So they're probably using it for thermal refuge as much as um, forage, and they're probably using it for different reasons, and we know they're going up in different times. We know they all end up back in the stream in the fall because that's where they spawn, although I saw some pretty convincing video a few months ago of what clearly looked to me to be brook trout in the act of spawning in salt water. Now, if, if that is true and this is Massachusetts Fish and Game then that's something we absolutely didn't know. though you know one thing we thought we knew was that brook trout spawn in freshwater, no matter what. These brook trout were filmed below the head of tide in what looks to me to be the active spawn. You know, they're whittling around a, a red and stuff. So, you know, we, did they
0: know if we, the uh, we, spawn survived?
1: Well, you know that would be the other thing, and this is the great unknown, yeah. and this is why I always say what we what we really know about sea run brook trout uh, is that we don't know about sea run brook trout. So, yeah. sure, they might be in the act of spawning, but they might not be successful. So, you know, that mean if that's the case, then they do not spawn in in salt water ever, and this was just some bizarre anomaly where these two fish happen to find themselves below the head of tide so you know there's a lot of things um, interestingly that one of the most studied trout populations in the world you could argue are uh, the coasters of the Great Lakes because right. they're studied they're by several, yeah. you
0: know, they're, they're
1: studied by several states and two federal governments you've got you know Canada's studying them, feds are, our feds are studying and Minnesota and Michigan and so, you've got this fish that is being born in stream habitat, is entering these gigantic lakes, they stay relatively close to the shore, hence the name coaster, as in coast, um, and then they return to their streams to um, spawn. And brook trout don't have to return to streams to spawn, brook trout can spawn in, you know, on, on, um, in, in lake when they want to. So the interesting thing is we know a lot more about coasters than salters and i believe we've already more or less confirmed that not all brook trout in a given stream become salters not all brook trout from a given you know brood become salters and, and i mean coasters sorry and uh, and i'd be willing to to say that those two life forms as different as they might look might be amazingly the same you know, what we know about coasters might be applicable to salters. Um, that, you know, certain ones just head for different digs because they want to eat and get big or whatever. Whatever the heck uh, drives them out there. So, you know, it's, you know, I wish those two parties could plug in a bit and say, you know, these things kind of look alike to me. And and what that is is that's what's called a life form. You know, these are not a – it's not a subspecies, Um and they were once thought to be subspecies, both salters and coasters. But now they're known to be, you know, a brook trout is a brook trout is a brook trout, with one exception. But um, but these are simply a life form. And that life form um, isn't that different than, um, than what they'd call lacustrine, which are brook trout that never leave a lake. Um, and in Maine, we have brook trout that spend their entire life in a lake or a pond. Um We might, I believe we do, have brook trout that live in lakes and ponds, of which some are spawning in lake and some are spawning in the streams. And, again, these are not things I should have to guess at. we got a lot of scientists out there. We should absolutely know that. And if we do know that, and I don't know it and you don't know it, then we've done a really poor job of sharing what we know with you know the public and i think the more public knows you know the better you know will behave and the uh, more we understand but but uh, so you know those are just life forms and they're not probably not that different
0: other than, yeah. you know, it's interesting cuz you, you know you could you could uh, you had mentioned personality and and it's like uh, oh fish have personalities but you know if you think about about humans um i like living in the mountains you know you like living in Maine. <laughs> We're both humans, yeah. but uh, we like different climates and uh, different places to live, and we feel comfortable where we live. I could go to Maine and feel totally uncomfortable, and you could come to Colorado and, and feel the same way. You know, yeah. So why, why, yeah. wouldn't, and why are, wouldn't some fish and just are, want to venture out a little bit, try a little bit different absolutely. things? You know,
1: there are people you know, who want to golf, and there are people who want to fly fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I've looked at some of the survey data um, during relicensing on my home river, the Kennebec, during relicensing of the Harris Dam at the head of the Kennebec Gorge. You know, this is all, a lot of it is just posturing. You know, they um, they hire a bunch of independent, you know, scientists and they go out and more or less it's like, okay, you know, my dam is not hurting this river, so now give me all the information I need to back that claim. So we do all these studies. We chase fish around. We look at, you know, eggs and, you know, our eggs being left high and dry, uh, you know, on and on and on, but a lot of it is is nonsense and analysis paralysis, but what I found most interesting is the movements, and every fish that was tagged, you know, it's got a number, and then, of course, they run around with the telemetry equipment and try to find these things, and...
0: You know, there were
1: fish that dropped out of the gorge and ran down to, you know, Wyman Lake, which is an impoundment way down river, and a couple others that decided to take a, you know, go south on the Kennebec and then head north on the dead and end up way up at Grand Falls, and, and others that hardly moved at all, you know. And so, you know, anybody who assumes that all
0: fish
1: are alike is wrong. I mean, it's yeah. no different yeah. than, uh, you know, the... I mean, we find, every once in a while, we find a cougar somewhere that's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from, you know, where he started. And uh, others probably, uh, you know, die within, you know, 20 miles away. Yeah, few
0: miles, yeah, Yeah, where they live. Um, In your book, you you did have a big section on um, the different uh, uh, well-known brook trout fisheries and there's way too much to even jump into, but could you just, uh, mention some of the, maybe the more famous ones that are still good, uh, brook trout fisheries? And I'm, and I'm not, um, uh, by any means an expert on this, but I always remember from way back that the Rangeley area was kind of, uh, a special place. Is that still a special place for brook trout?
1: Yeah, you could, it's fair to call Rangeley, Maine, you know, the brook trout capital of America. Um, okay. Four of the, the probably the top four brook trout, wild native brook trout uh, rivers in the country, at least the top three, are are in Rangley, The Rapid, the McGalloway, the Kennebago. They're not only great rivers. I mean, with brook trout up to 20 inches, but they're also historically great rivers. They've always been great. And and they have some problems. The Rapid River has bass in it now, swamp bass, but Basically, um, you, there is no river in the United States that competes with those three. We've got another one in there um, called Cubsoptic River, which by main standards isn't that exciting. Conversely, move it pretty much anywhere else, it's probably the best brook trout river in the state. Um, one exception would be the Dead Diamond River, New Hampshire. You know, that's probably the, you know, fourth Best, you know, when, and when I say best, I'm talking trophy. Um, you know, it's it's the Rapid, McGalloway, Kennebago, Dead Diamond in New Hampshire, and and then probably Cub and Rangeley, and and you know, Cupsupic has no love at all, because it's surrounded by you know quote better fisheries, and yet you know, Cupsupic could hold its own to the Rapid in in Virginia, which is considered by many to be, you know, the finest um, you know wild native brook river in Virginia. And yet, you know, my fifth or sixth best is probably, you know, technically better than the Rapidan. What the Rapidan is is best in class for where it is. Um, so that's, you know, and then pond lake populations, obviously, you know, chasing coasters on Lake and you know, Lake Superior. Um, but the Adirondacks still has brook trout ponds, wild native brook trout ponds where. You know, 18-inch brook trout are possible, maybe 20. Uh, Maine, not within an hour and a half of my house. There's, you know, a couple of ponds that still put up, you know, one lake and a couple of ponds that still put up 20 inches. Um, you push up into, um, you know, Baxter and up into the Allagash. You know, there's still, you know, just a, a number to throw out. Maine has... over 580 formally designated, legally designated, wild native brook trout lakes and ponds. New Hampshire has three. Vermont has none. New York's probably got 30, and they're all in the Adirondacks, and that's it without going, you know, out to Minnesota or something. So, you know, that's where you find your big wild native brook trout in most cases of these lakes and ponds, and you know, by default, that means you know you better come to Maine. And you know, there's some stuff hidden up in the hills of New Hampshire that puts up some good stuff, but it's not a lot of them. You know, there's not a yeah. lot of options. And as far as non-native, Henry's Lake in Idaho would be a you know trophy brook trout fishery by any standard. Um, Boulder Mountains in Utah, full of of these. They're they're. Um, They're interesting waters. Most of the ones I saw, they get their water from snowmelt, and some of them had no outlet at all or barely any. Some of them have been artificially um, deepened by berms and stuff, but there was a lot of waters up there that I would tell you were better than the average main lake and pond, smaller waters with bigger fish, and they manage a lot of their waters for brook trout in that particular section of Utah. Um, Henry's Lake? I think I fished it ten times before I caught a brook trout. I knew it had the state record. I couldn't convince myself that it was worth covering in the book, because while I knew it grew big brook trout and had the state record, I couldn't find the damn things. And so, how much of a brook trout fishery could it be? Well, then I talked to a guide, and I said, you know, can you really target them, or are they just incidental? And he said, no, you can target them. And we pulled a drift boat into a launch in a different part of the lake than I'd ever been to, and slid out mid-August and dumped an anchor off the mouth of a stream and caught, you know, 12 brook trout and nothing else. And they were all big. <laughs> um, so, you know, and yeah. then there's a bunch of places where you could just lump into one, but you're not, you know, places like the frying pan in Colorado, it puts up, you know, the occasional big brook trout, but you're, you know, you're it's luck of the draw. And yeah. I always tell people there's a big difference between, Somewhere you might get a big brook trout or somewhere, you know, that you actually get a legit chance. And, uh, right. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: The Rapid River, I would say, is the finest. The McGalloway's the second. Kennebago's the next. Dead Diamond's the next. A Little more seasonal than the others. And then, you know, countless lakes and ponds. Um, yeah. You know, I fish one pond up here off the grid. It's less than 30 acres. Half of it's too shallow to support you know trout they're not there you know if i isolated the deep hole it's probably a 14 acre 12 to 14 acre pond and it's really slow fishing but we don't ever see a brook trout under 18 inches in there
0: Hmm.
1: and uh and there's not many but they're brutes
0: yeah you know again there's a strain thing i can't tell
1: you why they're bigger than they are everywhere else they just always have been
0: yeah um Stefan, uh, I hope that answered your question about places to fish in the Northeast and so forth, and for sure, if you want a guide, definitely get uh, Bob's book, uh, Square Tail, and he sorts out all those, all those fisheries for you there. Uh, there's a few questions here. We're running out of time, but I'll try to run through some of this, and we're not nearly going to get to where I wanted to be with this, but... Um, One of the things that that, that's come up, and maybe you can address this, because there's questions about what flies are the best in the Northeast and uh, um, and you know things like that. But you know, I've always had the opinion, and many people do, that Brook Trout are opportunistic feeders and easy to catch. But um, as you've just told us, that's not always the case, and especially when you get into the larger trophy fish. So is that kind of an old wife's tale, so to speak, uh, or true sometimes and true not other times? You know, I'm going to
1: cut everybody some slack. The typical brook trout that the average angler encounters is a small opportunistic fish, probably dumber than, you know, quote, dumber than any other fish out there. And he has to be dumber because he lives in a place where food is scarce, and if he doesn't sample everything that goes by, you know, he's going to die of hunger. So they can be amazingly reckless. Um, you know, I fish, and this is because the average person only sees brook trout in headwater streams. So any trout in a headwater stream is going to be opportunistic and reckless, but most of the trout you see in headwater streams, at least in the east, are brook trout. So uh, conversely, you go to uh, Big Spring in Pennsylvania, um, you're laying on your belly throwing 7X, you know, with a, you know, tiny little scud, and hoping for the best. You go to Rangeley Lake, uh, sorry, the Rapid River, you know, you're throwing, you know, fluorocarbon and a, a lot of weight and bouncing the bottom for gigantic brook trout that are, can be amazingly picky. Uh, so, you know, like any other trout, if they're in technical environments spring creeks stillwater fish tend to be hard at least big stillwater fish especially tend to be harder than um, than the freestone fish um, any heavily pressured water like the McGalloway and uh, rapid and you know they see enough anglers that they get real smart the roach river places like that you know I fish the roach in Maine which is another really good trout river Brook trout river I see them in um, in the fall and and I can See physically, see I have a dozen, and you know an hour later i haven 't moved one of them, so that 's not what i 'd call a dumb, reckless fish mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it was funny, I just caught myself with a mainism where I said trout um, in Maine, if somebody says trout, they mean brook trout mm-hmm. if okay. if they say rain if they say rainbow, they mean rainbow or brown, they mean brown. If they say trout alone, they mean brook trout it 's mm-hmm. like the okay. default, yeah yeah. Yeah. So you know,
0: there's a you know,
1: the biggest and the simplest answer to that is that almost all trout in tiny little freestones are you know reckless and by default assumed to be stupid. And they're not stupid; they're just hungry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The um, uh, Scott Nelson asked um, what um, what the best time for fishing for large brookies in the Northeast is uh, and neighboring Canada.
1: Yeah. In um, the northeast, I would tell you when the bugs are the worst, the fishing's the best. If you've never experienced, you know, Maine biting insects, they are far worse than anything I've ever seen, other than Labrador. Uh, when I go to the Rocky Mountains and I walk into the fly shops and it says uh, on the grease board, you know, beware of biting bugs in the meadows or whatever, I go out in these meadows and I say, wow. These people don't have any idea what real bugs are. They're nothing. I mean, I say these are nothing. So, you know, Maine, June, you know, June is our best month. Sometimes, you know, you get lucky, and places like the Rapid can fish quite well in April, but you're going to be really cold and trudging through snow, and it could be good, could be bad. But most people would tell you June's our month. And, uh, you know, kind of Memorial Day to short of the fourth and uh, you're gonna be sharing the woods with mosquitoes, black flies and noceums and she, you know, we're humid as heck up here and but and then again in September. You know, the yeah. fish are moving again. And you know, and and I tell people who don't like, you know, real heavy humidity or don't like insects and mud and um, you know the September is a good alternative because water conditions are, are better, you don't have insects you, know, you don't get as much of the rain, but those are the two best months. October would be if we could fish more up here um, yeah, you know, we, yeah we're yeah. most of the northeast or most of New England's closed at the end of uh, September, and yet you know those fish in some cases not only are they getting going, but with some obvious changes to our our temperature our seasons um, we need to start considering extending our fishing into October because, you know, we used to hit September 1 ready to go and, you know, she'd be fishing hard till they shut the doors at the end of September. Now, some of these rivers, I'm not seeing these trout show up till the third week of September and a week later I'm shut out.
0: Uh-huh. Climate's changing, right? Well,.
1: You know, um, I, you know, I, you can argue what's causing it, but I don't think you can argue that yeah. it's happening.
0: No, it's it's happening, yeah. it's happening, it's happening, um, um, it's happening. Yeah, the, I'm a conservative guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Um I can tell you that from uh, visiting Alaska in 2006. I used to live up there when I was a kid in the late 60s, and uh, we used to see uh, go to this place, and the glacier would be right there. You could see the glacier and the water in front of it. And now you have to take a 30-minute boat ride to go okay. around go find Point it. to find the glaciers. So it's melting. Yep.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Well, but uh, when I had my fly shop in Maine, I used to tell my clients, "Get here between the 5th and 15th of June for the classic big spring mayfly hatches—Hendrickson's, Quill Gordons, etc." By the time I closed it 15 years later, I was telling them, "You better be here before a memorial." or you're probably going to miss it. Huh. That's a pretty significant shift in a relatively short period of time.
0: Yeah, in a lifetime. Yeah, in a 15-year window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a a well, we've got to close things up, but um, and we didn't really even get a chance to talk about conservation and preservation directly, but I'm just going to read off the, the headings in your conservation section of your book, just to give people an idea of what can be affecting uh, our fisheries, not only brook trout but but, uh, many other different kinds of fisheries. But you talk about range expansion, husbandry, geography, non-native fish. Uh, You talk about uh, climate change, habitat degradation, uh, fragmentation. You talk about uh, pollution, development, logging, mining. Uh, fracking, road building, agriculture, water use, stocking, um, I mean, I, I really, and fisheries management, uh, angler export, uh, exploitation, uh, I was, I was very, as I told you earlier, I was very amazed at all the areas that affect our fisheries, either directly or indirectly, and things that we really need to pay attention to. And I hope everybody goes out and gets your book, even just or that section alone, because they'll learn a lot about uh, the whys and wherefores of how we need to protect our fisheries and what we need to pay attention to. Um, and I, am, I do have, uh, Bob, I have a, and, and your book brought it out, uh, I just read a memoir by Pierce Clegg on the uh, Babine River uh, up in Canada. And he was talking about logging, how, the logging, they decided they need to create at a corridor where the river was, so they didn't go too close to the river, and they logged, uh, but, but not right up to the river, but close, and didn't realize how much that would affect the whole environment, uh, from bear to moose to fish to whatever. And your book uh, brought that out as well as it doesn't have to be right on river's edge <laughs> to be affecting the river, whether it's pollution or logging or, or, or whatever, that it still can have a great effect on 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 what goes on in the river. So, uh, I commend you on your efforts on your book, and um, I hope many people go out and buy it. So, uh, thanks thanks for writing that. <laughs> I really appreciate it. It was a, you um, know it was a labor of love.
1: It was a couple years in the making, and uh, as I tell people, it was the book I wanted to write, not yeah. the book that I had yeah. to write. It was. Uh, you know, I yeah. could give you a couple of w- almost one-word answers to some of these conservation questions if you've got... Sure. A,
0: yeah, go roll with it. We've got the, a couple uh, minutes.
1: On this um, conservation versus preservation, preservation means um, leaving it intact. Conservation means using the resource but not abusing the resource. Uh, brook trout populations going up or down, both. We're losing brook trout in some areas. We are recovering brook trout in others. Uh, we're losing them in places like Maine where we we're gaining them in places like Massachusetts and, and stuff, and that's in Jersey, and that's because they lost them all, and now they're bringing them back. And, of course, the rural states have to learn, you know, on their own, they got to knock them down before they're going to bring them back. Um, non-native fish affect brook trout through everything from competition with food and space, um, predation, potentially hybridization, not a lot of it. Climate change is going to affect brook trout more than likely any other species due to the fact that we are low elevation with, um, you know, a lot of marginal temps. The big threat to brook trout for climate change, it's not that brook trout can't handle a certain temp. It's that they can't handle that certain temp for long. And historically, that really ugly window when life gets really bad for brook trout has been short enough that they've been able to, you know, push out the other side of it. If that window doubles in length, I'm not sure these brook trout are going to be able to, you know, survive it. And uh, then um, beaver dams, uh, it's a hot button right now. I hear it all the time. Big picture, beaver dams are not negative to brook trout. There's a lot of people that will disagree. But beavers and brook trout coexisted just fine for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or however long it was. And can they have a short-term negative impact? Sure. But in the big picture, no. And as I've got a whole section on beavers and the impact on the book. Um, most people who read it have emailed me back and said it was an interesting piece. Habitat degradation, um, you know, indirect, absolutely. Indirect, um, you know, if you chop trees down on a small feeder stream and you remove the canopy a half a mile away, that can cause siltation where it empties into, and it can warm it enough that it contributes you know, warm water instead of cold. We see it all the time. Um, fisheries management played in the conservation and preservation of brook trout, not nearly enough. Um, in many cases, fisheries management is the enemy, not the friend, um, and that is because most fisheries are managed, especially at the state level, for social, not science. Um, it is to appease anglers. And that's why we stock. It's why we move fish around. It's why we have, you know, so-called supplemental stocking, which means in addition to wild fish. Um, And then we have this question here. Has there been any action toward protecting brookies? Absolutely. There's a bunch of small groups who have really... Taking the torch and run with it. Groups like Native Fish Coalition, Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition, Downey Salmon Federation, Protect Rhode Island Brook Trout, Trout Power out of the Adirondacks, and uh, the most telling thing I've heard recently was someone in the media told me for years you had to, um, you had to tread very lightly with the native message in fear of offending advertisers, fishing, game, and anglers. Now. The tide's turned enough that you almost have to get on the wagon because not getting with it might cost you more than, you know, than getting with it. So in my lifetime, I don't believe the native fish message has ever been stronger than it is right now. And uh, and that's good news. And it's not that, you know, non-native trout should go away or could go away, but it's that we, you know, we need to stop losing ground, and we're not going to stop losing ground until – Know, anglers take some responsibility for, you know, our own sport and, and our own resource and the resource that we fund. And, uh, so, you know, it it really pleases me to hear people finally talking about, you know, native fish and what the differences are and why it matters.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Well, thank you, sir. Um, stick with me here. We're going to give away a few prizes here and, uh, I'd like you to be a part of that. So, um, Everyone, we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a copy of Bob's latest book, Square Tail, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, we'll do that right now. Um, the uh, first thing we're going to do, and just a reminder to everyone, uh, before you leave the website tonight, take, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that said, what did you think of the show. Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Um, So let's give away a few of these prizes. Uh, These are, the first two are randomly drawn from our show's registration database. If you haven't registered for tonight's show, it's too late now, but uh, do so for our next show so you don't miss out on getting some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. Um, so The first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. It's flyfishersinternational.org and learn how you can be involved uh, with that great organization. Um, our winner for that is David Bond, David Bond in Colorado. So congratulations, David. Uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy your, your membership to the FFI. And then um, we're going to give away a uh, one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Time Journal. And um, I believe that was one of the uh, publications you wrote for Bob, right? Uh, from a, a I've had a couple of
1: articles in there.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so a great publication. And um, our winner for that is Ted Merchant in Massachusetts. Ted Merchant in Massachusetts. So we've got a Nor'easter up there uh, uh, listening in tonight as well. Um and now we'll give away a copy of Bob's uh, latest book, Square Tail, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Go to stackpolebooks.com. Check out all the books they have available. They're a, they're one of the great publishers, along with Amato, uh, of fly fishing books, uh, and uh, you'll want to know what they are. And I'm clearing my queue here. Sorry, there's a bunch of questions we didn't get to tonight. Uh, just too much to cover in one session, but... Uh, uh, thanks for asking those questions, folks out there. Um, so the question is: uh, We talked about brookies, brook trout, uh, when they go to sea, and those in Lake Superior. What are those common term names for those two fish? Those that go to sea and those that are in go to Lake Superior. So uh, I need two answers there for those um, uh, for that question. So, and then we'll see we can get to, to win uh, bob's book square tail so and if you don't win tonight go buy it um go buy it from stackpole or go buy it from uh, amazon and uh, i'm sure it's a book you'll, you'll really enjoy um i have signed
1: copies on bob oh
0: there you go okay we didn't uh, we didn't talk about a website earlier so bob mallard.com order direct from bob and uh will uh will take he can take care of that directly.
1: Um, I can take questions as well if anybody had a question that wasn't answered, feel free to email me through the website and I will respond.
0: Oh, terrific, terrific. Well, there's always things come to mind after the show, I'm sure. And um, it um, looks like we have uh I think we've got a winner here. Um, answer is uh a salter and a coaster. Uh is that correct? Bob. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, and that'd be Edward uh, Constantini in Wisconsin. So uh, I believe that's part of the range, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> the right? coasters. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So go up to uh, that. that uh, take that book and fish. Uh, fish the brookies in Wisconsin and up there in Superior. So, um, so Edward, uh, send me your um, send me your mailing address. You can use that same text box that you just answered the question in, and then we'll uh, we'll get that uh, book sent out to you from uh, Stackpole. Um, and uh, thanks everybody for uh, playing tonight and uh, paying attention. I appreciate it. And Bob, thank you so much for being with us tonight and taking uh, taking your time to share your knowledge uh, about Brook Trout. Um, certainly was enlightening and and uh, a great experience for me personally. So thank you.
1: And thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Uh, Our next broadcast will be on September 4th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And on that show, we'll be interviewing uh, Dan Steer, and our topic for the show will be backpack fly fishing. Uh, Dan has moved towards a simpler, easier-to-manage method of fly fishing. Let's face it, you can't take all the gear on a backpacking trip and still have room for all your fishing gear on a backpacking trip and still have room for your food and tent. If you want to catch a wide variety of fish with simple, minimalistic equipment that can fit into a day pack or a backpack, you want to listen to Dan's ideas and methods. Join us to see how you can get back to a simpler approach to fly fishing and enjoy it. We'd like to thank uh, Federation of fly, Fish, or fly Fishers International, a lot of books, Stackpole books, Baja Fly Fishing and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.